Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 286. Uh, and today, we draw ever closer to the attack of the Watcher in the Water. And you can tell we are drawing ever closer because the company themselves shall begin to receive forebodings of the presence and even hints from the narrator, indeed, from the very geography of something nasty and tentacular lying in wait for them. So um, that is uh, what we're going to be looking at tonight. Welcome, everybody. Um, uh, so tonight, in real time, we are coming to the uh, the last session before uh, Christmas. It's holiday season here. Um, and uh, I'm just... Uh, just thankful to everybody uh, in this holiday season. Thanks to all of you who have uh, uh, been joining me on this long trip. Uh, just wanted to say thank you, guys. Um, really grateful for you. It's going to be fun because the very next session of this is going to be our anniversary session. Some of you will remember that we started on Tolkien's birthday, which is January 3rd. So that will be our next session, which will not be on the 3rd. It will be on the 2nd. Um, but... Um, uh, but yeah, so we're going to be we're going to be celebrating our anniversary and it will, I believe, if I remember correctly, be our seventh anniversary that as it was uh, January 3rd, 2017 was the date on which we had our very first session. Um, uh, so uh, anyway, that is um, um, that is going to be a fun session. It'll be the next one after after tonight. So seven years and we will still not quite have made it to the Watcher in the Water. Um, yeah, yeah. It's true. I, if we just go past midnight next week, I guess it will technically uh, be Tolkien's birthday. Um, and even more so, actually, uh, it will be Tolkien's birthday in the UK when we do class last, next next time. So that'll be very far. Very, very, uh, uh, very, uh, um, you know, Legit, right there. Um, all right. Oh man, Dollar Stroke is saying that uh, Dollar Stroke is uh, gonna be not gonna be able to join us live anymore. Oh, that's too bad. Ah, you're going back to London. Speaking of the UK time zone, yeah, no, I know that's very hard. I, it's, I'm always, um, I'm always very. Uh, of course, I wish that I could do this at a time which worked conveniently for everyone. Um, but of course, I can't. And the evening time zone, you know, time slot, which is the one that works best for me, is, uh, I know, almost impossible for the people in Europe. So I know there's a general uh, kind of bias against Europeans in this, uh, uh, in this, for this live session. And I've always been sorry for that. But, um, uh, anyway, yes, exactly. Mudmore says, dang, round planet. I know. I know. It's hard. It's hard. It's, you know, something uh, something we, we deal with a lot at Signum University, trying to accommodate lots of people from lots of different time zones. And it's um, it's a real challenge. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, I know Ilmaniel. That's great. It's uh, uh there are always a few people who can somehow, either people who stay up very late or people who get up very early uh, in uh, in Europe who can join us live. But um, 
Yeah, exactly, Bjorning. I blame the Numenorians. Yeah, that's exactly the problem right there. But um, in any case, so thank you, Dolorestruck. It's been awesome having you. Uh, maybe we'll be able to connect on some other broadcasts or at some other some other points. Um, but anyway, that was cool. And I remember I remember getting to. Uh, I know I've gotten to meet you. Uh, I, I think more than once, I believe, uh, at uh, in person at gatherings. So, um, yeah, I was gonna. Sug- I was. I was gonna. Uh, wondering if you're gonna be over in uh, in England in time for York, because um, of course we're doing UK moot again this year in April, um, over in York. So yeah, that would be a great. That would be a great time. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. No, get, getting ready as we turn over. You know, we prepare to turn over the uh, the calendar. Uh, into 2024, we're looking at a very, uh, a very exciting and um, uh, event-filled spring, moot-filled spring. I always love traveling around and getting to connect with folks and being able to uh, to do the the wonderful moot meetups that we do. Um, wonderful days of discussion and presentations uh, and activities together. Wonderful opportunities to uh, just connect and, um, you know, get a, get a chance to hang out with wonderful, like-minded people, uh, for a day. And, uh, this, this spring, (laughs) this spring is going to be fun. This spring is going to be fun. It will be an interesting sort of test case. Uh, I am either going to absolutely love it and thrive in it, or or I'm going to be pretty tired. One way or the other, because we're um, there's a lot. We have a lot of moots happening, starting um, with Australia, Ozmoot, um, down in um, uh, down in Sydney, Australia, at the end of uh, at the end of January, and then we're going to Orlando in February, and we're going to. Let's see if I can. I, mean, I don't know if I can do them all off the top of my head. And we're doing Texas. We're doing um, doing Texas. York, England, Southern California, um, Edmonton, Al- uh, in Alberta. Um, we're doing. Where else are we going? I said Southern California. Southern California is going to be Carlsbad, California. Um, um, yeah, Texas, Texas is going to be Houston. Uh, we're we're going to be in Houston there. Um, and uh, oh man, let's see. Yeah, there's <laughs> my. My favorite stretch, <laughs> my favorite stretch is what I'm doing. I'm doing, um, I'm doing Texas, York, Carlsbad, California, near San Diego, and Edmonton in like a five week stretch. <laughs> yeah, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. Um, so <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it's going to be great. Um, uh, so, so yes, lots and lots of, uh, of fun opportunities uh, for getting together this coming spring. Uh, and I'll keep you updated on the, uh, the final list as we move through. But, of course, you can always go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org slash and then look, look at the events uh, page. It's an event section on there. And you can see all of our current events. Um, but... 
Uh, yes, Dizzy, I can't wait to see you guys again in Sydney. It's going to be so much fun to get together again. Last year was such a wonderful uh, sort of discovery. Uh, uh, my first trip ever to Australia and our first ever Osmoot, being able to come down a second time um, is going to be is going to be really, really fun. So um, that is going to be awesome. Anyway, so that's so many things uh, coming up here in the new year. It's going to be great fun. But let's get back into our into our text here. So you'll remember that um, I leapt ahead and began discussion of the first paragraph here. But what I said I was deliberately putting off was uh, thinking a little bit about the sound patterns here, um, because I, I think they're pretty interesting. Now I'm going to pay attention to those. Um, so let's just... And you know that I normally like to start with this, but since we had a limited time, I didn't start with this last time. So just listen carefully and tell me what you hear. The day was drawing to its end, and cold stars were glinting in the sky high above the sunset, when the company, with all the speed they could, climbed up the slopes and reached the side of the lake. In breadth, it looked to be no more than two or three furlongs at the widest point. How far it stretched away southward, they could not see in the failing light. But its northern end was no more than half a mile from where they stood, and between the stony ridges that enclosed the valley and the water's edge, there was a rim of open ground. They hurried forward, for they had still a mile or two to go before they could reach the point on the far shore that Gandalf was making for. And then he still, and then he had still to find the doors. All right. Hey, Bjorn, this is not negative one slide. This is the slide we were in the middle of last. I'm just picking up where we left off. This is our first demi-slide, maybe three-quarters of a slide. Um, okay. So, yes, Little Room Johnny, that was the main thing I was noticing, too. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, Vardendil is hearing the slither of something slimy. Yes, we get lots and lots of S's. Um, once again, a very sibilant paragraph describing this lake. This is becoming a trend, right? We've been getting lots of S's and lots of F's um, in the descriptions of the lake. Uh, You'll remember we heard that before, um, and we're definitely seeing this again. I was. There are a few other things that kind of um, form some smaller kind of patterns, like, for instance, we begin with day was drawing, right? The two D's. We don't get a whole lot of D's after that, but the first... And again, this... I feel that this is fairly common, right? When Tolkien is being very conscious, like, very cognizant of the sounds of the words that he's using, when he's kind of in this mode, which I don't think he is in every single paragraph, but when... But it does seem to be a lot of the time when he's doing description. Um, but in any case, he often will do this kind of a, um, you know, two words really close together, either back to back or separated by one like this, the day was drawing, um, in order to, um, uh, in order to, I don't know what, like sort of cue us in, prime the pump. Um, but, um, but anyway, yes, all of this, we get so many S's, um, Notice also that again there, there are some other small patterns like the C's, right? The, the the K sounds. Cold stars. Company could climbed up the slopes. Um, so we get you know four of those. They're all C's, uh, but they're, they're they're the hard K sounds there uh, in the first sentence. Um, 
but right along with them, we get the S's. Stars glinting in the sky high above the sunset, with all the speed they could, climbed up the slopes and reached the side of the lake. Um, and, you know, I... Uh, one of the things... You can't, you can't ever prove this, right? But when I start noticing patterns like this, I feel like you can begin to see places where Tolkien has made, and we've seen this several times, right? Where you can see him making sort of conspicuous word choices. Like he's reaching for, for particular consonants, right? Um, not that it's like, I don't mean a reach in a bad sense, but he's just, he's using words or phrases that you wouldn't normally necessarily say. And here, oops, and here I'm thinking side of the lake at the end, right? Um, cold stars were glinting in the sky high above the sunset. Um, with all the speed they could, climbed up the slopes and reached the side of the lake. By the time we get to the end of that sentence, um, slopes, side, side in particular, um, shore, brim, there are lots of other things, but like, you don't normally reach the side of a lake, right? That's, that's an unusual, that strikes me as an unusual kind of thing to say. Um, yes, Almerea, I think that's exactly how I think about this. I think that that is, in my opinion, the primary effect that he's going for here. I don't think... I mean, is there an element of onomatopoeia involved? Yes. Sometimes I think that that is the case. But even that, I think, is a subset of the larger thing, Amaria, that you're pointing to that we've talked about before, which is more the sense of the way that he is creating a soundscape with the sounds of the words themselves. Um, how there is something in um, there's something in the quality of these sounds that he is that, I mean he's like um, it's 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 like it's like um, um, building a um, yeah oh, JJ you're right sorry JJ you're right the word lakeside is common but that's a totally different concept right um, have you ever walked up to the edge of a lake, you know, to the, to the, been in a lake, walked up, walking up to the edge of the water and say, like, I've come to the side of a, you might, you might come out to the side of the pool, right? But you don't come out to the side of the lake, right? That's, um, yeah, you might come up to the shore, um, edge, I don't know, you know, but it, side, to the side of the lake, that, it's, it's that phrase. Um, yes, lakeside as an adjective is a totally different concept. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, I um, but I do think exactly as I was saying, I do think that Tolkien is he is using sounds, consonantal sounds, especially like, you know, as an artist, he uses shades when he's painting. Um, but um Anyway, yeah, so...
How far it stretched away southward they could not see in the failing light, but its northern end was no more than half a mile from where they stood, and between the stony ridges that enclosed the valley and the water's edge there was a rim of open ground. They hurried forward, for they had still a mile or two to go before they could reach the point on the far shore that Gandalf was making for, and then he had still to find the doors. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, as I say, I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest any kind of deep symbolic meaning. I do think it is interesting um, that um, the the dominant, the most dominant sound throughout this paragraph is the sibilant, um, especially in the front half of that paragraph, um, and that that has been a trend in his descriptions of this lake so far. Um, yeah, and I just, if you, if you are resistant to the idea of Tolkien using sound shapes, sort of shaping sound in this way, all I can say is that Tolkien, Tolkien is extremely auditory. Partly it's just his training in alliterative poetry. Like, his ear has been trained by decades of studying alliterative poetry, um, having a, a sort of a sensitivity to the sound of words, especially to initial consonants, and the effect of those. Um, it's one thing... It's one thing that you really begin to get the flavor of. Um, because this is something that you can see in alliterative poetry as well when you're reading things like Beowulf and things like uh, you know other other Anglo-Saxon poetry other old English uh, old and, and middle English poetry as well a bunch of alliterative especially in what was called the alliterative revival uh, in the 14th century um, that's where uh, poems like Sir Gowan and the Green Knight and Pearl for instance um, but what you see in a poem a poem that operates through alliteration like that um, you will find trends. You will find tendencies um, to use, per, not just to do alliteration, right, but to reach for alliteration on particular consonants at particular times and for, for particular effects. Um, and some of it works better than others. Like that is, you know, you, it, it, it can be, you know, the alliteration can be, str can be strong, it can be weak, it can work really well, really, really powerfully with um, what is being said and with like the momentum of what is being said. Um, and then at other times, so I mean like to, just to give one really obvious example, um, it is possible in alliterative poetry to alliterate on a vowel. Um, the rough rule in uh, alliterative poetry is that all vowels alliterate, so it doesn't really matter so much. So if you're doing a vowel line, it's it's not quite a freebie, but it's like almost a freebie. I mean, it's not quite a non-alliterating line, but it's it's from an alliteration standpoint, it's weak. Um, uh, but that can be really effective. Um, in a, When you want to have a moment where you're kind of cooling off, Right when there's something sort of quiet or just sort of gentle happening, when you want to interrupt the driving rhythm of the poem, 
um, and uh, and not like continue pushing forward at that same pace. You can put in a line or mix in a few lines of uh, vowel alliteration, and the effect of that, I, I find anyway, the effect of that is to kind of chill things out a little bit, right? Whereas like you don't want to do that many times in the middle of like oh the fight with the dragon or something like that. Um, but um, uh, but but then you get well you, you'll sometimes get you know, again, different patterns. And I, you know, I don't know, I don't know alliterative poetry well enough um, to be able to talk in great detail about the way in which they do deploy these kinds of sounds, but they do, right? I mean, when you know this stuff, when you, when you think in that way, right? When you feel alliterative patterns in your bones, right? Because you've done it so much. And we know that Tolkien did because he composed in it, right? He found the alliterative meter especially conducive. Um, there were people, this is, um, this is actually how the modern Silmarillion happened indirectly, right? Um, because he wrote the first version of the Children of Hurin, right? The, uh, the, the first long form of the uh, story of the Children of Hurin. He wrote it in alliterative verse because he loved alliterative verse so much and he loved thinking and feeling in that way, right? So he did this epic poem on, you know, the Turin Turambar story uh, in alliterative verse and showed it to a colleague of his, an old English colleague of his, um, basically with whom he got into a discussion with his colleague who was like, yes, it's really a shame that nobody writes an alliterative meter anymore. And Tolkien's like, well, actually, maybe somebody does. And they were like, well, I, would, I don't know that it would work well in modern with modern English. And Tolkien's like, actually, yeah, it kind of can. Right. So we sent it to him. Right. But then, of course, having sent like the story tour and tour bar to him, he was like, uh, it's kind of coming out of nowhere with no context. Let me give you some context. So we wrote a plot summary um, uh, for this guy um, so that he would have some kind of, you know, narrative context for the story of the children of Hurin. And that plot summary became the Quintus Silmarillion uh, eventually. Um, but um, anyway, anyway, um, but uh, my point is this kind of attentiveness to the texture of sound patterns and especially of initial alliter of you know initial consonant alliteration is just I don't think Tolkien could turn it off. I really don't. And in these moments, the thing that is fascinating me most is that what we are noticing again and again and again is that these passages where he's describing landscape is where it keeps happening. Right. That's where we keep finding some places in dialogue as well at dramatic moments. Right. Fling fuel on the fire and all that sort of thing. But it's been principally in those landscape description scenes. And that's what's so interesting about that to me is that Tolkien, of course, is also a painter. And I've been saying for a while that I think that in a lot of his landscape description, what he's doing, I think that he thinks as a painter first. I, I, I've been saying that for a while, um, that what we're getting often when he's doing landscape description is him trying to do in words 
what he's picturing, like the the, the picture that he like his his like painter's vision of the scene. Um, and sometimes he tries to capture that with paint. Um, and these are some of the things that we get, which are often called illustrations, like Tolkien illustrating his text. But I don't actually believe that that's what they are. I don't think that he's illustrating the text. I think that he is trying to capture there in paint that picture that he had. And in words, he was he was also trying to capture it in words. Right. Uh, but in many ways, his attempt to capture it in paint, that's the it's not like that's just an illustration of what he said. What he said is trying to capture that, if you see what I mean. I think that that really kind of comes first. So the really, really fascinating thing that I'm finding here is that it's, you know, I want to make the comparison, as, as I did just a few minutes ago, to him sort of deploying the patterns of sound almost in the way that an artist would deploy shades and colors, right? Let me reach for a little bit of, you know, uh, a, a little bit of dark blue. I, I, I want the, the dark blue to pop here, right? And that's, you know, just like the day is drawing at the beginning or the, or the, 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 the cold company could climbed uh, at the beginning in the first sentence, right? That's like him reaching for those, you know, those 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 white highlights uh, to really to really draw this out, and then you know the, the sort of the dominant shade, which has its different its different tones, right? Its different tints in different places. The S, right, which again is is not uniform. We've got the stars, sky, slopes, stretched, right? Each of those is actually an S consonant combination, right? And thus each one has, is a different shade, right? Of that sibilant sound because of the way that it combines with the, with the following consonant, right? And yet it's all, you know, red or whatever, you know, the equivalent color is. I'm not trying to actually guess what the equivalent color is to these particular sounds. Um, but um, anyway, I do think that he is... Whether he thought about it this way, right? Whether the language that I'm using to kind of describe the concept is the language he would have used to describe the concept, I don't know. Um, but I am very convinced. Um, I don't even know exactly how consciously he did it. I mean, again, like, is he sitting there saying, hmm, no, this needs uh, a little bit more D, Right. Let's uh, let's put in some more D words in order. I, I, I don't know if he was thinking about it in those terms. Right. But then again, I don't understand how artists think either. Now, I don't understand how a painter thinks. Um, you know, I mean, is a painter really just being like, mm, no, what it wants is, you know, I, I, you know, more of this color. I, I, I don't even know. Right. I don't even know. Um, but. But that he was. Sort of. Um, that he was very conscious of how his prose was received on the ear in this way. I'm very convinced. Um, and, you know, he talks about, you know, he talks about the Lord of the Rings being about a million words long, and he talks about having considered each one of those words very carefully. And one of the, I've, I've, you know, Tolkien said that. I've seen people quote that before, right? But I think that 
I think often people don't think enough about what exactly is it that he's considering. Um, because at, sometimes people will talk about, and I know that I myself have often marveled at how careful he has been in general about things like the etymology of words. Like he's, he's mindful of using particular words and the particular flavor that they have philologically speaking, right? Um, given the history of these words and where they come from and how he's, I mean, this is why he's, for instance, uh, never said the word tobacco uh, in The Lord of the Rings, but uses pipe weed instead. Um, he's doing, he's making a particular uh, sort of philological and world building point by doing that. Um, but I do think that something um, that has been generally misunderstood or nah, underappreciated, that's the better word, underappreciated, is the extent to which in his revising, tweaking, niggling, rewriting of his text, um, the extent to which he is also hearing it and thinking about things like the soundscape and everything. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, that was fun. Let's talk about that. We, we, we talked about the meaning of the first uh, paragraph last, last time. Um, let's, um, let's look at the second, second paragraph. When they came to the northernmost corner of the lake, they found a narrow creek that barred their way. It was green and stagnant, thrust out like a slimy arm towards the enclosing hills. Gimli strode forward, undeterred, and found that the water was shallow, no more than ankle-deep at the edge. Behind him they walked in file, threading their way with care, for under the weedy pools were sliding and greasy stones, and footing was treacherous. Frodo shuddered with disgust at the touch of the dark, unclean water on his feet. Okay. Um, first of all, gotta notice Gimli again, right? You see here... Um, and again, the more we look at this, the more um, the more I think that Peter Jackson missed such an opportunity in the films um, because he chooses to make Gimli's approach not only sort of silly in his overconfidence, um, but he totally misses the fact that, like, this is, he's walking on sacred ground, you know, and also approaching the home of the dwarves with the confidence of someone who feels like he should be there, right? Um, it's the, um, and it's, it's, and it's, a, it's an interesting kind of combination, isn't it? He's, he is excited. He is, he's ranging out in front of everybody else because he can't wait to get there, right? And yet there is clearly an awe about it. And yet it doesn't seem, Gimli's attitude doesn't seem to be the kind of awe or like the flavor of awe that, um, uh, that leads him to be, 
taken aback or to feel like I don't belong here or do I dare, right? Um, that, that doesn't seem to be the experience that Gimli's having here. Um, he is, he strode forward undeterred. Everybody else stops looking at this nasty water, uncertain about what to, uh, what to conclude, right? What to do? Do they really want to? Gimli doesn't care, right? Gimli doesn't care. He just strode for undeterred. He is not going to let. I mean, it's a narrow creek, right? He's not going to let any narrow creek of any kind get in his way, get between him, even even to pause at a narrow creek. Gimli isn't even gonna gonna allow, right? Um, he is not gonna let himself be deterred. He is gonna continue striding forward towards Morik. He is so close now, right? There is nothing gonna stop him. Um, and so yes, this idea of everybody else stopping and pulling back, and Gimli just not even pausing, right? He just just full stride walks straight into the stream and across it, right? And found that the water was shallow, no more than ankle deep at the edge. Found that the water was shallow. He had no idea. I mean, he could have confidently, you know, who knows? Maybe, like, it seems unlikely, but maybe it's like a deep channel or something, right? There could have been a, and he's not that tall, right? So he could have been wandering along and then, you know, dropped down into the water with a male shirt on. Um, But um, uh, no, no. Um, <laughs> Everett says, uh, Gimli's making up for all those times his dad made Bilbo go on ahead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I like that idea. I like that idea. And Corey, I don't know what the edge refers to. I find that odd. I would have thought, like, he would have, no more than ankle deep, like, how deep is it in the middle? I don't care how deep it is at the edge, right? I can see how shallow it is at the edge. Um, uh, Yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of um, uh, sense to me, actually. No more than ankle deep at the edge. Um, Unless Tolkien is using... Oh, at the edge of the lake? Uh, yeah, maybe. 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 That would make more sense. Not at the edge of the creek. So the where the creek meets the lake would surely be the deepest part of it. Right? Maybe? Um... Right, yeah, Vardendo was thinking the same thing. That seems likely. That seems likely. Um, it's an odd way of saying it. Because if he means at the edge of the lake, the lake as a sort of antecedent of that phrase, in a sense, um, we haven't gotten since the very first, you know, when they re- came to the northernmost corner of the lake. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So, okay. Um, first fish is saying when the shore meets the creek would have to be shallow, else the lake would drain right out. Well, no, not if the creek is coming down. Um, but I have to say, I find this hard to understand in any case. A stagnant creek. That's a thing I don't get, really. Um, I would have thought that stagnant and creek would be like opposite things, right? Kurtzman says go to Texas. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, yeah. A narrow creek, it was green and stagnant, thrust out like a slimy arm towards the enclosing hills. I... Yeah, not much water at a gentle slope would do it. Um, yeah, see, Cook of Wooten Minor, that's what I was wondering. That's what I was wondering. Um, Says it looks like etymologically, creek has not always referred to a stream. That's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if it's just like an outshoot of the lake, essentially. Um, a long, skinny outthrust of the lake. So it's still standing water. It's not a, a flowing, it's not flowing in or out of the lake at all. Um, It's thrust out towards the enclosing hills. Right, okay, Cook of Wooten Minor. Where are you getting that definition? A small inlet or bay? Narrower and extending further into the land than a cove? Yes. Yes. Okay. Ah, Wiktionary, okay for Creek. Sure. Um, right. Rodney says in UK English, it still isn't always a stream. Most English creeks are tidal channels flowing only in heavy rain. Yes. Okay. Um, that makes a lot of sense here. That would explain the stagnant for sure. Um, yep. Yep. Okay. Um, Dollarstruck asks, does Crick Hollow have a creek? I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt that Crick Hollow has anything to do with cricks. <laughs> with creeks, that is. Is it a hollow of creeks? Maybe. I mean, it could be a creek in from the river in the sense of a... I mean, it's near, right, the Brandywine. Ah, oh, look at this. I love the, uh, I love the literary exa examples, Eric. Here's a, from, from a poem from Kipling, Rudyard Kipling. 
Which is important because he's like the generation before Tolkien. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken any way you please, is bad, and strands them in forsaken guts and creeks no decent soul would think of visiting. Stranded in a creek. Um, uh, yes. Stranded in a creek definitely suggests like a, like a watershed, like a, um, an inlet which is sometimes full of water and then sometimes recedes. Like if it's tidal... Right then, at low tide, it would probably be dry, and you would be stranded, which is um, exactly what Kipling is describing there about the tide, right? And you're abandoned in creeks. Yep, yep. Um, I don't think being up a creek without a paddle is the same thing. I think that's an American thing. Um, yep, yep. Um, Yes. Um, okay. Anyway, I'm not going to get too distracted by Crick Hollow, but I, 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 this that fits much better. Um, I was not getting the sense of any kind of running water. Um, that this is a sort of inlet from the lake. Notice what what this you know what this looks like to me almost looks like to me it rem, or I should say let me say this differently you know what this reminds me of what this reminds me of is the snowbank in Carathras the snowdrift that is that was thrown up across their path to try to prevent their escape. This has that same kind of feeling, right? The way that it's described. A narrow creek that barred their way. Right? A narrow creek that barred their way. I don't believe... Now, we are led to understand that the snowdrift on Carathras almost certainly was, in fact, thrown up prevent their escape, right? That was actually a deliberate act of sabotage against them. I don't think that this has the same kind of implications. I don't think that this is... um, I don't think that Tolkien is suggesting that the lake or its inhabitant is actually here actively, has thrown out this creek in order to try to prevent them. But it... It has that... That's the language that's used. A narrow creek that barred their way. They can almost walk all the way around the lake, but there's this one place where there's a narrow creek which is blocking them, right? Again, it is as if... I'm not saying it is, but it is as if the lake is reaching out an arm or, I don't know, a tentacle... Right, in order to try to obstruct them. And it apparently does temporarily obstruct them. Well, everybody but Gimli, right, who strides forward undeterred. But the fact that he is undeterred implies that everyone else is deterred, at least temporarily, right? They stop, they pause, they look with, uncertain, with uncertainty and with apparent disgust. It was green and stagnant, thrust out like a slimy arm, 
towards the enclosing hills. Um, the comparison to an arm reaching out, the use of the verb bard makes it seem like the lake is actively reaching out, trying to block them. Right. Um, and a green, slimy arm, which in a moment, well, in a moment, by which I mean several weeks, will feel like foreshadowing. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Bjorning. I'm not suggesting there is the same kind of intention. But remember the sense that we've had all day long, ever since they woke up and found the wolves gone. The sense of eeriness. The sense of unnaturalness. The sense of some kind of conspiracy of the land itself against them. Just like on Karathros. The vanishing of the river, right? The hiding of the road, like the road wasn't hidden, but like Gandalf didn't find it where he thought he was going to find it, right? All this stuff. Um, and um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, they're so they're first this this sense of the lake thrusting out a slimy armed, you know, uh, to bar their way is doubtless not literally true. Though, again, the lake isn't actually being active and intending to block them. But at the same time, they're not... It's, so it's just a perception, right? They're just being paranoid. It's just part of the mindset they've been in all the way along. And yet they're not totally wrong, right? I mean, we will come to learn eventually that this lake is an artificial lake. That was constructed, it seems, deliberately, in order to block the way. Um, it is, in fact, a trap to uh, deter or ensnare travelers. So, the implication of intentionality there is, I think, not literally true. And yet, it's also absolutely not wrong. Absolutely not wrong. Um, Behind him they walked in file, threading their way with care, for under the weedy pools were sliding and greasy stones, and footing was treacherous. Um... Again, note the implication of active and malevolent intention on the part of the lake. Um, it's like this is a... Uh, footing is treacherous. Like, to call footing on slippery terrain tre treacherous is a totally normal way to talk, right? But in the context of this paragraph in the context of this chapter so far. It begins to be a part of that personification, right? Is indeed the lake waiting to betray them, in some sense? Yes, of course, it is perfectly natural that a green and stagnant water 
green and stagnant and slimy water would be filled with slippery, weedy pools and sliding and greasy stones. Yeah, of course it would. Right? Um, but that uh, doesn't make the perceptions wrong. Um, yeah. And yes, um, I see Aspen and Vardendil talking about the uh, relationship or, you know, the sort of the question between personification of landscape or actual genius loci, right? And that's the question, right? That's the thing that's so interesting about this whole passage, the, this whole chapter so far, right? This entire description of their progress through the land ever since Karathras. That's been the question, right? Karathras started off as personification, right? We're just talking about the mountain like you do. Talk about mountains as if they actually had knees, right? As if you were going up its side, as if you're looking at its face, right? This is how we talk about mountains. We personify them, right? And then they went up Karathras and found it seems act there seems actually to be a person involved, right? It is the wind, but that doesn't make Boromir wrong in saying that uh, there are fell voices on in the air. Um, and that having once established that, now he keeps using all of this personification language to describe um, to describe the mountains around them, to describe the lake that they come up to. Um, and it begs the question. That's been really one of the biggest questions looming behind them, around them, all day long during this day. Is the land out to get them? Or does, do they just feel that way? Right? Is it just them? Or is there really something? Right? Um, and... In the end, this wonderful thing that Tolkien does, he never confirms it one way or the other. Is the land out to get them? Is there a genius loci in this place which is out to get them? It's possible. That's a thing in Tolkien. We just saw it on Karathras, right? We don't know for sure whether there is or not, right? We don't know jumping ahead a tiny bit, we don't know what the Watcher in the Water is or where it came from or why it's there or what it's up to or almost anything about it. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, what we're getting is personification and personification which clearly does tell us how they feel. Frodo's final shuddering with disgust at the touch of the dark, unclean water on his feet is sort of the final and explicit statement. We've, we've been getting disgust all the way through this paragraph, right? Leading up to the actual use of the word 
in the final sentence. And it's the touch of the dark, unclean water on his feet that makes him shudder in disgust. But we've already been invited to shudder with disgust, at the not at the touch of the water, at the feeling of its uncleanness, but at the idea of its uncleanness and the implication of its probable malevolence. Um, yeah, yeah. Bjarne's owner, I agree. Um, the vague hints about intentional opposition uh, in the wording suggests the vague and subconscious sense of intentional opposition the company is feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and Johannes, I agree. There's, there's a lot of... Um, there's a bit of a spectrum there, isn't there? Johannes says, uh, it's more like Kirithungal to me. It's not the landscape per se, but there's a hidden malice that influences the feel of the land itself. Yeah, we see both things, don't we? We see places where the land itself is an expression. Um, we see times when the malice or hunger or um, just the the greedy evil of someone who lives in a place which taints the landscape, like the desolation of Smaug, like we will see at Isengard, um, like, of course, we will see in a very advanced state in Mordor. And I agree, Johannes, like we see in Carathungol as well. There are places where creatures leave their mark on the land, and the landscape remembers it. The landscape itself becomes part of, an extension of, that malice. Um, but I, um, I don't think that... Um, I don't think that, well, I don't know. It is very possible. The pro sorry, I will me be less cryptic. What I'm, what I'm hemming and hawing and saying I don't know about is I don't know about the Watcher in the Water. Like, I don't know enough about the Watcher in the Water to know, is this an expression of the Watcher? Um... Is what they're seeing in and around this lake, is this like the desolation of squid, right? Is that what we're seeing? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if the Watcher in the Water is that kind of thing. Probably it is. Um, probably it is. Uh, or, right, Bjarne Sona, that's the other option, that the Watcher is the most tangible facet of a much wider corruption or antagonism. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, yeah. Where it falls in that, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. Um, it is interesting to see. It will be interesting to see. Um, that, uh, um, let's keep tracking that. See what we can gather from the way he talks about the Watcher. 
Um, I do agree, certainly, that the way that the lake is being described as thrusting out a slimy arm, a green slimy arm towards the enclosing hills, um, does make the lake feel like an extension of the Watcher. Right. Um, remember, um, uh, is it Sam who says whether they made the land or the land them? I don't know. Right? I think it's when he's talking about the elves in Lorien, isn't it? Um, when he talks about how they belong there, whether they've made the land or the land's made them. He can't tell. And I'm feeling the same way about this the, the Watcher and the Lake right now. Right? Whether it's made the land or the land's made it. I don't know. Um, yeah. Interesting, Maureen. Maureen says, Tolkien the painter has gone from the red rocks to the green lake. Yes. Yes. Um, now... Let me address the burning question <laughs> that many of you have that I I didn't I just didn't want to get distracted by right away. Uh, is Frodo wearing shoes? I think clearly not when he's crossing the the creek here. Um, I think like obviously if you're wearing boots which are not waterproof, you can still feel the touch of water on your feet. But that's not what's being described here, right? Wet boots. Even when you step into, like, liquid mud in boots, that you don't get that same feeling of the touch of dark, unclean water as you do when you step barefoot into something like liquid mud or onto sliding in greasy stones. Um, uh, I So I think... That sentence, the touch of the water on his feet, says to me very clearly that he's barefoot. What does that mean? Does that mean he was never wearing shoes? Did he never have boots, even in the snow? That's, that takes a lot of believing, as uh, the gaffer would say. Um, is it possible that he is taking off his, that he's taken off his boots? Since he got, I mean, maybe they have boots, but they just don't wear them. Uh, they don't wear them except when they have to, right? And they haven't had to since they came down out of the snow. Maybe. Is it that he's just taken them off to cross the creek? Which they, we, they, we know they paused at the edge of the creek because Gimli strode forward undeterred, right? And they were deterred. Is part of what they were deterred by that the hobbits wanted to take off their boots because they would rather go across barefoot? Uh, then go across with, you know, everyone else is like, you know, Gimli apparently did not take off his boots, right? He didn't even stop. Um, so, I'm, I, you know, are, some of them might be in the Gimli camp and be like, actually, I'd rather have wet boots than walk barefoot through this nasty, slimy, freezing cold water. But the hobbits are like, oh, yeah, no, we put us in the, we'd rather, you know, the barefoot camp, right? Um but, um, yeah, so, um, uh, I do not know which of the, uh, 
given that, again, I see absolutely no reason to believe that hobbits would not get frostbite in the snow, howsoever leathery the soles of their feet are, um, and that Tolkien himself seems to have thought of this, given that he painted Bilbo with boots on in the high mountains, um, I don't see any reason to assume that the hobbits are standing barefoot in the snow on Carathras. Um, but they are barefoot here, clearly. So, you can make up your own minds. Do you want to imagine the hobbits immediately taking their boots off when they get out of the snow? And uh, going barefoot down here all the time? Or wearing boots here and just taking them off to cross? Don't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no clue. <laughs> no clue. But it is clear. I, I, I think it's clear that he's barefoot right here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, there was something else I was going to say about this paragraph. Oh, yeah. Just the word unclean. Um, there are lots of things... There are lots of ways in which the disgust which the hobbits themselves seem to feel is, has been reflected in the description so far. Green and stagnant. Slimy. Greasy. Right. These are the adjectives that have suggested that have that have suggested disgust. Right. But there have been a couple times in which something more has been suggested. Right. So actually, let me go backwards a little bit. Um, yeah, there it is. Gandalf. First calling the water gloomy, but then saying it has an unwholesome look, right? Um, and unwholesome seems to be a, um, I don't know, that feels like understatement to me. That feels like lightotes, as we would say. Um, uh, yes, the opposite of Holland, Abelard, that's exactly right. There is a wholesome air to Holland, uh, and... Uh, the lake has an unwholesome look. And that's almost pointed, isn't it, Abelard? Right? This is the Holland Gate. This valley was the valley for the welcoming of their friends, the elves from Holland. Right? And now the elves from that land which still has a wholesome feel to it, because elves once lived there thousands of years ago now. Um... Now this valley has been corrupted by this unwholesome lake. Um, yeah, Cookavut and Minor, that's one of the things I'm, I'm kind of getting to here. Um, uh, Cook was asking, how does this section compare to the ways in which Tolkien describes other tainted places like Dol Guldur or the Dead Marshes, Gorgoroth or Angband? Um, is that different from the feeling we get with Karathras? Yes, it definitely is. Karathras is malicious 
but this is exactly that's why I wanted to point this out, right? Um, I wanted to um, point out that it isn't just creepy. They're not just afraid. They're not only just personifying it in ways that suggest that they're uncertain whether it's malevolent, right? What we get is get first Gandalf saying that it's unwholesome, and then Frodo feeling that the water is not only dark, it's unclean, right? And that, I think, means more than just dirty or muddy here, right? Um... Yes, the, there is, Cook, I would say, this sense of corruption, right? Um, when Tolkien, think of um, how Tolkien describes the slag heaps on Dagorlad, right? Remember when um, Frodo and Sam first see it? That area, that region. Uh, Tolkien, just in that marvelous description that I can't wait to discuss with you guys in a couple decades, um, he describes it as looking like the mountains have vomited the filth of their entrails. That's bad. That's bad, right? Um, uh, it is brilliant prose, isn't it? I lo- I've always loved that sentence. I remember there are, there are several sentences that I remember just lingering over, like as a teenager, and just kind of like when I was first reading, you know, like back in my early days when I was a kid, first reading The Lord of the Rings, and there were some sentences I would just kind of like repeat to myself and, you know, just kind of feel the the rhythm of them. That was one vomited the filth of their entrails. Um, Extremely visceral, isn't it, Argent? Absolutely. Um, But anyway, the point is, like, and then you may remember Sam's response, the first words, first dialogue we get at the end of that description is Sam saying, I feel sick. (laughs) Right? It it makes him feel sick. Right? Um... It's just a, it's a sickening landscape. It's meant to be. Um, so yes, it is not just dangerous. It's not just malevolent. It is corrupted. It is, um, it is sickened, right? Um, and there's a, there's a sense, there's a sense of that too here. Something is wrong. Something, this is... This lake is bad. Um, and we will see, Frodo will go on to talk a little bit more about his perception of that, his feeling of that. Hey, let's go on and look at some of that. As Sam, the last of the company, led Bill up onto the dry ground on the far side, there came a soft sound, a swish, followed by a plop as if a fish had disturbed the the still surface of the water. Turning quickly, they saw ripples, black-edged with shadow in the waning light. Great rings were widening outwards from from a point far out in the lake. There was a bubbling noise, and then silence. The dusk deepened, and the last gleams of the sunset were veiled in cloud. 
Gandalf now pressed on at a great pace, and the others followed as quickly as they could. They reached the strip of dry land between the lake and the cliffs. It was narrow, often hardly a dozen yards across, and encumbered with fallen rock and stones, but they found a way, hugging the cliff and keeping as far from the dark water as they might. A mile southwards along the shore, they came upon holly trees. Stumps and dead boughs were rotting in the shallows, the remains, it seemed, of old thickets, or of a hedge that had once lined the road across the drowned valley. But close under the cliff there stood, still strong and living, two tall trees, larger than any trees of holly that Frodo had ever seen or imagined. Their great roots spread from the wall to the water. Under the looming cliffs they had looked like mere bushes when seen far off from the top of the stair, but now they towered overhead, stiff, dark, and silent, throwing deep night shadows about their feet, standing like sentinel pillars at the end of the road. Okay. Um, all right. So, notice um, Abelard can't help but notice right away um, exactly what you were pointing out. The, the collision, right? The meeting of the unwholesome and the wholesome. The memory of the wholesome influence of Holland, right? Um, the holly trees themselves. But almost all of the holly trees have been consumed by the lake. The unwholesome has won. Stumps and dead boughs were rotting in the shallows. The remains seemed of old thickets, or of a hedge that had once lined the road across the drowned valley. So, the road used to be lined with holly trees. Because it's the Holland Road, right? But the lake has destroyed the holly trees. And it's not just, they're not just gone, right? They're lying dead and rotting. We get the decomposing corpses of the holly trees still there. Um, exactly, Grateful Zah. They're part of the ick now. That's exactly right. Um, what was wholesome has now been made unwholesome. Yeah, it is like the Dead Marshes, in a way, Kurtzimus. Yeah. It has an unholy look. Yes, that's true, Green Great Dragon. You're absolutely right about that. Yes, the uncleanness has spread. Bjarnasonar, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yes, Bjorning, we get the two sentinel trees. Still strong. Where is it? Still strong and living? Yes. But close to the cliff there stood, still strong and living, two tall trees. I, uh, I trust the alliteration was jumping out at you there. Still strong, two tall trees, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and notice we get it at the beginning of the paragraph again. Gandalf now pressed on at a great pace. We get the P's to cue us into the alliteration. Gandalf now pressed on at a great pace, and the others followed as quickly as they could. Here, it's like in pairs. 
almost. Pressed on at a great pace and followed as quickly as they could, they reached the strip of dry land between the lake and the cliffs. It was narrow, often hardly a dozen yards across, and encumbered with fallen rocks and with fallen rock and stones. But they found a way, hugging the cliff, and keeping as far from the dark water as they might. The F's and the C's, you know, the F's and the K sounds. A mile southwards along the shore, they came upon holly trees. Stumps and dead boughs were rotting in the shallows. The remains, it seemed, of old thickets or of a hedge that had once lined the road across the drowned valley. But close under the cliff there stood, still strong and living, two tall trees, larger than any, than any trees of holly that Frodo had ever seen or imagined. Their great roots spread from the wall to the water. Under the looming cliffs they had looked like mere bushes, when seen far off from the top of the stair. But now they towered overhead, stiff, dark, and silent, throwing deep night shadows about their feet, standing like sentinel pillars at the end of the road. Oh, man. Oh, man. Um, love the soundscape there. Notice how he intensifies it. Like the alliteration jumps up and grabs you by the collar, doesn't it? When we get the description of the trees. Or the or a hedge that had once lined the road across the drowned valley. But close under the cliff there stood still strong and living two tall trees. Larger than any trees of holly that Frodo had ever seen or imagined. Oh man. Um Yeah. Yeah. Um, you just can't miss it there. Even if you'd been missing it up through there. Um, and yeah, Dizzy, I agree that the, the description of the strong and living trees, um, it's not enough to remove the ominous feeling, right? Um, they themselves are living and wholesome, um, strong and living, and not just living. They're not just living. They're large. They're living large, right? Larger than any trees of holly. Um, living large holly, right? Um, larger than any trees of holly that Frodo had ever seen or imagined. Yes, Penlov, I agree. There's a kind of defiance, isn't there, uh, to um, uh, to the description of the trees. Yeah, to the feeling of the trees there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. There's more to talk about here. Well, you'll notice I mostly skipped over the first paragraph. Um, the actual paragraph in which something happened. <laughs> so we'll come back to that. This, of course, is our, our, I think pretty clearly, our first appearance of The Watcher in the Water. 
Um, but um, we'll come back to that next time. It's it's uh, it's getting late, so I'll let you guys go. Um, we're gonna shift over to our field trip time in Lotro. Um, for everybody who can't stay with us, thank you for joining us. Um, it has uh, uh, been a lovely 2023 year. Look forward to seeing you guys again in the new year for the next class, which will be our anniversary discussion. So we'll be discussing discussing swish and plop uh, and black-edged ripples on the, on the still surface of the water uh, next week in our anniversary class. Um, but um, let me... Uh, let me see if I actually can um, do the thing here. Hey, all right. Sorry, my um, my uh, Windows, of which I'm not a huge fan, was trying to uh, was having a hard time finishing its updates. So um, let me. Uh, let me finish that up. Okay, here we go. And now it's got itself more or less sorted out. Hang on. I'll be right into the game in just a moment. Okay. There we go. Good evening, Corey. Good evening. How are you, Druid's Fire? I am splendid, Chris. The raid is awaiting on your pleasure. Excellent. Um, I will be right there. We, uh, uh, unfortunately, Valori couldn't be here. Uh, she is, uh, see, I think that uh, one of uh, one of Valori's problems is that she has children of very different ages. So her house is constantly being infected by a wide variety of, uh, of, uh, of germs, which, you know, like, uh, I, you know, I have a teenager now, but I'm not getting, like, the nursery school germs anymore. Um, and the industrial side of the time, Exactly. Exactly. All right. But here we are. Um, here we are. All right. So let us... Hey. Okay, there, yeah. you, there it went. All right. Excellent. We just got the milestone, as I recall, at Echad Terthas. And we're going to head over and check that particular ruin out. It's surprisingly elven ruin. <laughs> yes. Door struck, you're right. Children are wonderful but disgusting. It is so true. Um, this is true. Definitely true. I don't even have kids and I even know this. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine who used to work at uh, BioWare and Service, the Old Republic, once referred to his then five-year-old daughter as a germ warfare factory. That's it. That's it. That's how it works. Okay, so we are in on the edge here of what is labeled Karas Galebren. Because, of course, Lojo couldn't use the real name. Okay, so... Um, oh, man, Penloth, I... Uh, yeah, it would be fun to do the instances. Um, Narnian can't really do instances. Well, we can definitely carry you through them. Yeah, well, maybe. Yeah, it's at some point. 
at some point I'll do um I know there's a whole bunch of story that I've sort of missed um, and will keep missing because unlike, you know, at least when we were doing, we we're looking at things like, um, you know, when we were in the Vales of Anduin or when we were uh, on, uh, you know, with that other, where were we? Oh, yeah, the Wells of Langflood. That's what I was thinking of. Mm -hmm. You know, we we're up in places like that. Um, and I was like, well, Griffith will get here eventually and I'll figure out what it's all about. Um, and uh, that still is true. Someday Griffith will get there and I'll do all the quests and learn all about all those local towns and things. But of course, here we've jumped back. Griffith will never come here and do all these quests. So at some point, I will have to take time out and do these quests somewhere else. But um, uh, anyhow, all right. Let us see what we're about. All right, I want to... So we kind of came in here... We sort of blew past a whole bunch of things. So first of all, we have all these mounds of rubble, which is interesting in itself. We saw mounds of rubble like this. Um, where did we see mounds of rubble like this? We often see them in lar like former castles and things. Um, I don't remember seeing a lot of mounds of rubble of this kind in elvish ruins like this. Big. Only if there were rubble piles, it'd be like very small. Yeah. Like in a corner somewhere. Yeah, I. Yeah, maybe it was directly attacked. It's possible. It's possible. Um. So. I, I want to come up on this mound because I want to look around here, up on the plateau up there. What direction am I facing? I'm facing almost due east. Okay, so up on the plateau up there, we can see towers. Well, there were a couple towers up there, but none of this stuff looks defensible. I think that might have actually been part of the point. It wasn't meant to be. Part of the swamp, you say? Well, I, I don't think this entire area was meant to be defensible. It was like an elven kingdom. Yeah. An elven city that was more more casual and fortress-like. Yeah, I think that this is definitely... I mean, it certainly has the look, architecturally, um, like stylistically, it has the look of basically a Regian West, right? Pretty much, yeah. Not shocking as Western Eregian is indeed the land that's up to the north of us here. So that all seems to track. Um but that would mean that this would date from the same time period um, as the rest of those ruins over in Eregion. Um, you know, mostly Second Age stuff. And, uh, and as we saw over there, I mean, they had all kinds of stuff, like truck stops and theme parks and all kinds of things over there. And they were just crazy over there in Eregion. And so looking here, the, the towers and I, it does not look like fortification still, but you would need, would hardly need to build a fortification at least to protect that place from the West here. I mean, cause you've got that big old cliff. Um, but of course, obviously we know that Oregon does fall um, does fall by storm. 
so let's back up a second. And I mean, I'm looking at the map. I mean, literally back up. It's the second age. Let's imagine we're in the second age. Sauron comes up from the south and invades with his armies. Almost certainly, right, Sauron is going to come through. I'm going to go back one more. Sauron is going to march his armies through the Gap of Rohan. Remember, this is, this is all pre-Gondor. Gondor has not been established. So there are no defenses. Um, there's, there's, there's no Gondor to prevent him crossing the river. There are Numenorean, um, like Pelargir will already be there, down by the coast, where the Numenorians have already made a port, um, but, but there's no Gondor. This, by the way, helps you to understand the point of Gondor, because in the Second Age, Sauron could just take a big old army, march it out the Black Gate, go across, you know, cross the river, either north of Rauros or south of it, whichever, Cross Rohan, march through the Gap of Rohan, and up north into Eriador. And that's how he gets up here into Eregion and invades and kills Celebrimbor and all that kind of thing. Right? Now... There wasn't anything there. Huh? There pretty much wasn't any, any Numenorean or... I'm trying to not use... Cool you mean terms, al along the way? Like in Rohan? Yeah, I mean, there and were people. Oh, there were some people, but it wasn't like... Rohan wasn't established, so you didn't oh, no. have, like, Metacell yeah. or any of that. No, nothing was. No fortifications. Exactly. That's exactly it. So there was nothing to stop Sauron from marching his big old armies up into Eregion and up into Eriador as a whole, right? That's the whole point that Elendil and Isildur and Inarion make when they land from Numenor and establish Gondor. Right. What they do is like, OK, no, we are going to keep Sauron pinned in Mordor. If he wants to attack anybody else, he's got to go through us. That's why, you know, the long traditions of that are what lead Boromir to talk the way that he does in the Council of Elrond. Right. When he's Absolutely. like, we are the ones who, you know, it's thanks to us that all of y'all have peace. And he's not totally wrong. But anyway, okay. But we're talking Second Age. We're talking Second Age, and there's no Gondor. So Sauron marches straight through, through the Gap of Rohan, and up into Eriador. So he's going to come up through Dunland, and, you know, again, there's not going to, certainly not going to be any resistance to him there. Up through into Enidwyth. Now, he could march up, um, the, and remember, there would have been no road either, so there's, there's no greenway yet. Right, right. So it's not like Sauron's coming up that way. And in any case, that's not the direction he's going. Because there's only one thing up here for him to attack. And that's Eregion. That's because this is where Celebrimbor is. This is where the Rings of Power thing was going on. Right? So he marches through Dunland, up into Enidwyth. Right? Through Enidwyth and up into Eregion. But it's possible. Yeah, so we're over here. Um, it seems to me very likely that Sauron probably would have gone both ways. That is, he could very well have 
invaded up through like what in the Lotro map here is Fordereath up straight into Eregion across the river. And then also possibly sent other like another part of his army out through the path which uh, is going to become the road eventually and up through the way that we just have been exploring and up through here because this would have been here. This is the only thing that really would have been. Now, were the people who are in Hlongaren, were they already there? Possibly. Would Sauron have cared? No, he certainly wouldn't have cared about that. And JJ, I'm thinking the same thing. If the main city of Celebrimbor was up just north and to the east of us here, right, in the Tom Mirdain, he could have attacked it from both directions if he sent part of his army up across the river, um, you know, up through into Eregion from the south, um, and then part of his army around from the other side, which would have come through right where we're standing right here. Um, so, yeah, that makes all kinds of sense to me. So I'm going to guess that this place was actively sacked by Sauron in the Second Age. And um, this place, by the look of it, was eminently sackable. Because there's nothing. There's some towers. But I'm not seeing walls of any kind. I'm seeing watchtowers. Yeah, maybe watchtowers. Not if that I'm seeing it unless they threw them down. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, all these towers were taller than they were. I mean, like, the, the, the fat bottom bits are all there, but they're all broken halfway up, which is itself kind of interesting. Like, that's... That none of those towers stand. Even the ones up on the cliff aren't, are broken off. So, maybe that means... Were they actually, like, did they set fire to them? Um... You know, I don't know. Um, a lot of blackening, like, um, any sort of evidence of fire. Well, I was, I was thinking that too, but then again, um, you know, a lot of that might have uh, been worn away in the last couple thousand years. Ah, it's the gate. So they built the wall here. They built the wall here, but they built the wall here just for the sake of, like, putting an archway in it, I think. Yeah, there's no mechanism or portcullis nope. or anything to stop people from just marching on through in triumph. Right, but not only that. I mean, even if you just go, like, a little ways this way, and, I mean, okay, there's some water here, but it's not deep. And there's a little bit of wall that connects it to this tower, but then there, that's it. Then there's nothing. So, yeah, this is not exactly a defensible position. I think this is just, it's just meant to be fancy. Let's see. Who are they being fancy? For whose benefit were they being fancy? Here's a road that comes into Karas Glebren. Here it is. Where does it come from? Well, no, elves don't exactly need a reason to be fancy, but I'm saying, like, this looks like it was, it, it's, it's, it's an approach 
right? Like they've they've kind of they pimped this, you know, for the sake of like it looking cool from this particular approach. So who is approaching? Who would come from this direction? Well, this goes Sorry? Elves from London coming in from the west. Possibly. Possibly. You know, Bill Gallant and company to, you know, see the fancy the fanciness on the way in. Yeah, well, let's think about that. Because if we're here, if we're here and we want to get to Linden, how would we go there? You know what's the fastest way? The fastest way to go there would be to cross at Tharbad and then to cross it to to cross to cross the Guathlo at Tharbad, go across Car- what will later be Cardolan, cross the Brandywine at Sarnford, excuse me, the Baranduin at uh, Sarnford, and then cross the someday to be Shire and yonder Shire, and there you go. You're now at Linden. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. And they, that is the elves of Linden, would not have had any reason to go north of there. Like Rivendell was not established yet. R- Rivendell is established as a refuge during the war, like when Sauron invades. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, oh yeah, it's a fur piece, Amethor, and I'm not saying it isn't a goodly distance to Linden from here, but, you know... Elves are fleet of foot, right? Yeah, you're elves, and also, you know, you're not in a hurry either. You stop and party along the way, you know? You take a few months on the journey, a couple years, who cares? They could also go to Tharbot and take ship and just, you know, sail around the Cape and go into the Great Hames that way. You could. You could sail around and come up the Guathlo and come from... But in which case, you'd still be coming up from Tharbod. And coming out this way. Sure. Sure. So what makes me wonder if there would be some sort of, like, havens here, like some sort of docks on this river. Just hop right out here and just, you know, go down the stream. That is a great it's question. Kind of, it, it, maybe boats or something until you get to Tharbot and then you take the really big ships? That is possible. Because this, well, it's hard to... Well, I was going to say it's hard not to be biased by the much more modern road that's here, but this road does go straight up into those gates, so it does seem likely if because we, we didn't come up this way. This road, if this is a good road that heads straight down. Now, some of these lower waters and things might not. So I'm going to we're going to I'm running out of time anyway, so we might as well let's let's check the connectors here. All right. So here's, this is a dead-ish end. But see, this is exactly the kind of thing that might not have been here. A lot of this water in this wade water area might have been, and it's clearly not very deep. We didn't even lose our horses. Well, mind the hobbits don't lose their horses because the odds pretty good. Coming across, yeah, and then there's, there's this too. Yeah. This is all really shallow. Ooh, is this, no, still shallow. Yeah. So yeah, it's called the Wade Water for a reason, right? Right. These could be they might have been there and the elves don't care. It might not have been there. Um I don't see any evidence of a bridge. Um Stun Duck the new need one. Wait, sorry? It would shell one if they wouldn't need one, because I mean that's what forts are for. 
Yeah, um, yeah. No, exactly. It's definitely it's definitely shallow enough. And then we're going to get up right over the hill. I remember from here, over the hill and then down to the river and to Tharbad. Yeah. Um, would the Numenorians of the High Second Age have engaged in contact and commerce with, the, with Linden or Eregion? Both. I see no reason why they would not have had contact with both. Um, which means it is conceivable. So this river, which river is this up here? Do we know what river this is? We don't really know what river this is. Do we? I don't think it has a name. This one, no. It's just like a little tributary to the Guathua. But anyway, this river needs a bridge. And so we get a bridge, right? So that means that these bridges over here, I would not be surprised to learn that the Numenorians originally built these bridges. That wouldn't surprise me in the least bit. Now, I don't think that these are old Numenorean bridges because I don't think they're old enough. I think that these were at the least rebuilt in, during the time of Cardolan. They look like Cardolan bridges. It's, the, it's, all, it's all in the blue trim. So these are these are these are Cardolan bridges, but this whole area I want I'm just, I'm like pining for any evidence of a pre-Cardolan ruin around here, but I don't see any. But see, like this kind of thing, these these ruins and arches that we're seeing here, this is a little more grandiose. The Numenor not not that the Numenorians aren't grandiose. I don't mean to suggest that, but um. um what I'm saying is the Numenorians weren't really like living here. They were this was just a port for them to trade. And the Numenorians tend to go for like grey stone and the Cardolan Yeah, maybe. I mean it's it's more brownish and such. Yeah, um, they would have used the local stone rather than importing what they needed. Yeah. There's some wings. Wait a minute, hold on. Take a look on this side of the thing. There's definitely some Gondorian wing structures going on here. Wait, what are you looking at? Oh. Oh, yeah, looks like the a tumbled down part of a, a huge... Some... Ah, uh, yeah, some... Uh, some megalithic statuary here. Ah, oh, yeah, there's a face. Isn't that the face? Nose and eyes. Yeah, I think they had a big old statue here. Oh, that's very interesting. That's very... Oh, yeah, I see the face now. That's very interesting. That means... That means that they, that is the people of Cardolan, so I'm trying to get a different perspective on it. If we look at it from further up the road. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can see the face real clear from over here. Yeah, okay. So this means that when... Somebody 
either the pe- the people of Cardolan or the older Arnorians or the older Gondorians built a huge bloody statue right there in the middle of the river. Kind of like guarding or marking the river. And given that the face fell down on this side, I'm guessing it was facing this way. Right? It's facing downstream towards Tharbad. Yeah, Penlaw, it's like Argonoth West. You're right. Um... That's a really big face for the size of the tower base. Oh. If I had to guess, I would guess Gondor. Wouldn't it make sense for Gondor? Because this is the edge of the Gondorian territory. And for them to be oh. like, we're going to make a big old Gondorian statue facing out and be like, now you've just crossed into Gondor, bub. Right? Like, that's the effect they would want to have, you'd think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of like the Argonaut saying, hey, you, you just crossed over. It feels the same. We just don't have, like, a hand sticking out saying, don't go any further. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I think... I agree. I think that that's what we're... I think that's what we're seeing here. But notice the difference in the color of the stone between the face mm-hmm. and the building that's up there. The Gondorans love their gray stone, so this feels to me like if they maybe they took over this tower, it might have been already there. Uh, they slapped a Gondorian face on it, but they definitely imported their own stone for it. Ah, oh, my theory is the other way around: that the Gondorian statue was here first, but then during later on. Later in the Third Age, during the times of the Civil War, Cardolan people crossed over. We know they did. We know also, ah, remember the ruins we saw just outside Mossward? Um, Remember that had like the courtyard with the white tree in it? Yes. So there there were a group of Cardolan folks who had like a bit of a Gondorian fixation, right? So they come over here. The Gondorian statue gets built, let's say it gets built right at the beginning. Like Isildur is like, hey, the Argonath, that turned out great. Okay? Um, make me another one up by Tharbad to mark the northern edge of our uh, of our territory up there. Right? Well, not, it would be probably Menelder, who was like, actually, yeah, I love the Argonoth. Let's do Argonoth, you know, north-west. And, um, yeah. So, they built the Gondorian statue, right? Uh, Menelder commissions it, let's say. Here marks the beginning of the territory of Gondor. But by the time we come to the Civil Wars, the Arnorian Civil Wars, and the Cardolan people are getting all uppity and moving south because they're not quite so uppity that they're not, um, you know, well aware of the fact that they're the third strongest of the three warring factions in Arnor. Anyway, they're moving south, and the ones who cross the river get a serious case of Gondor envy, as Amethorn was saying. They cross over. Now, in the meantime, it's been a while, and the Gondorian statue is in disrepair. Like, it's partially collapsed. Right? And let's say, you know, like, maybe the face fell off. Who knows? But in any case, um, in any case, they, um, they, 
they build this like keep here. They build this tower here on this island um, where that tower used to be as a kind of like, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of aggressive, right? I mean, they're moving over into Gondorian territory, but Gondor, like, Gondor doesn't care at this point. I mean, by this time, Gondor's, it's not fully in decline yet, but they, they're not, they never cared particularly much about this part of their lands, right? Um, yeah, that makes sense. But, yeah, but those Cardolan people who are like, yeah, we're totally, we don't have Gondorian envy at all. We're just going to go over there and pretend we're Gondorians. They're, they decide they want to set up and live right here and build a little, like, mini Tharbad right in the middle of this little inlet, right where that Gondorian bragging statue used to be. Mm-hmm. I think statue sounds like a really cool compound word. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Oh, excellent. JJ got us a, a, a big close-up of that uh, that face. Nice. Yeah. Oh, it's got that full Gondorian beard that you get. Uh-huh. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. That's good. That's good. Yeah, he does look asleep. If he's guarding the way into Gondor, he's uh, not doing a great job. Maybe that's why they threw the, the statue down. I think... Yeah, it's it's not it doesn't have the purpose of the Argonoth exactly. JJ, that does look like a tree. I agree. I think that is a Gondorian seen. tree, JJ. I think I, I think you've just proven that that's a Gondorian statue. I mean, there was a similar tree symbol on one side, but it was nothing even JJ. Mm-hmm. Nope. I think that's exactly it. Um. But the symbolism of making a, um, a colossal statue with the eyes closed would suggest, like, we are at rest. We are at peace. Um, you know, be easy because we, like, you know, Gondor rests from toil or whatever. Like, the message is not, like, we are ever vigilant and ready to, you know, pound you into... Uh, in a mincemeat the minute you come across. And you don't pound mincemeat, you chop mincemeat. But you understand what I'm saying. Um, yeah, really I think... the sleeper, just the facet of the, the wearing down of the statue over time and the fact that it's part of its shadow, so it looks like it's asleep, but actually really wasn't one. No, I think it's, I think it's actually got its eyelids closed. I think even the lines underneath the eyelids suggest closed eyes. I think that's deliberate. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, hard to tell for sure about exactly what that statue looked like, but I, you know what I would love? I would love to see a, a full version of that statue somewhere. That'd be really interesting. Um, okay. All right. Um, we're super late, so... We should end here. We'll go back uh, to Karas Kalebrin next time, having established kind of the area around and what's going down here, get a, gotten a clearer picture of things. We'll go back to Karas Kalebrin and see what we see there. What what can we learn about the elves who lived in that 
um, you know, that the, the western frontier of Eregion there. And maybe we can start wandering up into what is on the map labeled Western Eregion uh, also next week when we get there. But all right. Anyway, in the meantime, I will let you guys go. As I say, it's getting very late. But thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, and we will see everybody in the new Yay. year. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. <laughs>